Welcome to Changed My Mind. Over 80% of people think we are becoming more divided. But does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. Hosting alongside me today is Laura Osborne, a corporate affairs expert who's fascinated by what impacts reputation and makes it so hard to change our position. Hi, Ali. I'm really excited to talk to our guest tonight. As she was already a successful entrepreneur before she became an activist, so I want to talk to her about how she made those career choices and got comfortable with changing her mind professionally as well as personally. Normally, we're also joined by Alex Chesterfield, a conservative counsellor and behavioural economics expert. But Alex is just so brilliant today that she's out in Korea giving a keynote speech. So that means it's just me and Laura alongside our formidable guest. That guest is Shannon Downey, one of America's leading activists. Shannon is the founder of Badass Crossstitch. She's an artist, craftivist, community builder and instigator. After a career in digital marketing, she pivoted to become development director at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, as well as being a lecturer at Columbia College and DePaul University. Her protest work has been celebrated and shared by millions around the world. Shannon has been featured in Vogue, Elle, Harper's Bazaar and Slate. Her first book was optioned earlier this year, and we can't wait to see it hit the shelves. Shannon, thank you for joining us today. You've taken a brilliantly winding road to get where you are, and we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I was running a digital marketing company for about uh, 10 years that I started, and Advancing Justice was one of my clients. And when... Um, I knew sort of the last couple of years of doing the work um, that I wasn't super happy anymore and that sort of the way the industry was going, I really only had two choices to like really scale, which I had already done and then scaled back because I like scaling, having employees was not my favorite. I actually really thrived on building a freelance community and, and working that way. And so I knew that I was going to transition, but I had no idea how I was going to transition or what, because I certainly wasn't just going to, you know, get rid of my company after 10 years, you know, for anything. And Trump got elected. And I thought, well, this is a really great catalyst for me doing something different. And, you know, while I was working with amazing organizations and nonprofits that were doing brilliant work in the world, I felt sort of a step away from it as their, you know, sort of like marketing and comms companies. And so Advancing Justice was looking for a director of development and I was sort of helping them try to hire someone. And I found myself getting really like defensive of the org. (laughs) And (laughs) I was like, why am I getting so defensive? And, you know, why am I scrutinizing these people so aggressively? (laughs) And then I realized like, oh, I feel like maybe I would like to do this. And we had a conversation and I was like, I love what you're doing. The work that you're doing is so important right now. I think I could really support this movement and and that was it it was game on so you'd sort of taken a path and you know started to expand what you were doing and take on employees and then at some something pushed you to say actually no that's not that's not the right thing for me I think a lot of people find making those types of decisions really hard and changing their mind on you know to, to a degree almost what what success looks like for them um, not what they thought it might look like for others. I just wondered if you had any reflections 
on that at all? No, absolutely. That was probably one of the most challenging moments of my life, actually. And it was, you know, I, I had invested a lot in my identity as an entrepreneur. And I had started this thing and I had grown this thing. And then, you know, when you're in the entrepreneur community, like you scale that like there's, you start a business and you scale it. That's like what you yeah. do. And so I started this business and I started to scale and then I started to scale more and suddenly I had a bunch of employees and I was, you know, and then suddenly I wasn't happy and I couldn't figure out why. I was like, why am I so unhappy? This is like exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And I spent a lot of time thinking about and like observing myself and like, when am I happiest at work? When am I unhappiest? And I realized, you know, that I... And I have absolutely no formal training in business whatsoever. So like just, I didn't even understand the idea of working on your business versus in it. Um, And I realized like, oh, I'm not doing any of the fun stuff anymore. Like I used to be working with clients and I used to be, you know, coming up with strategy and doing this fun work. And now I like pay people salaries and handle HR and, you know, I'm constantly looking for the next client so that I can pay their bills and, and I was like, well, that's so interesting. It's the actual work that made me happy. Mm-hmm. And it took me another like year and a half. Um, and it was probably eight months to get to a place where I felt like I could say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to reverse course here and, and not feel like I'm failing. And then another eight months to like help my employees find other jobs and like, or transition back to freelancing with me. And, you know, like, I wasn't just going to like blow it up. Right. And, and then, and when that transition finished and I was back to it being me and, you know, an army of freelancers and, um, you know, the first time that I got to say no to a project that I didn't want to do because I didn't have to pay people's bills was like, I was like running through the halls skipping and I was like I did it I did it this is what success looks like because this is how I feel like I feel good right now I feel happy again and when I realized then that um you know after you know eight or nine years that the market had just shifted so much that my options were only to you know scale massively or like you know sell the company off to like so it could be in-house somewhere um that was yet another moment of like, you know, how, how invested am I in my identity as an entrepreneur? And like, is it that thing that brings me happiness or, you know, it, would I scale up again in order to keep that identity? Would that feel successful? Or am I willing to let the identity go in order to have what I think will be actual happiness? And kudos to Trump because he really pushed it over the edge for me. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> no, I should trust. And then he got elected and I was like, nope, let's burn it all down. <laughs> like, I, have, I don't need this identity. There's so much more important things in the world than just like me feeling existential yeah. about my identity as an entrepreneur. Like, no. And so, uh, you know, the, running that business and, and then closing that business was, some of the biggest life lessons I've, I've ever gotten around change and making hard choices and what is success and, and personal identity and, um, mm. and just what do I want to bring to the world? 
And so, so yeah. Yeah. And congratulations, because I guess this is not the first attempt we've made to record this podcast. And one of the reasons that it was delayed (laughs) um, was actually because you were earlier this week working to persuade some local congressmen to change their mind on an issue and and to campaign. And it sounds like you did. What was it that you were trying to campaign with them on? Uh, Yeah. So this week uh, we passed the Voices Act, which was, uh, you know, a year ago we passed the Trust Act and that was to protect folks by providing this like clear delineation between ICE and the immigration enforcement agency and the police. So folks that got pulled over for like a speeding ticket, like couldn't then get deported. One of the pieces that got sort of cut out of that was around domestic violence, asylum seekers. And so this was the team sort of bringing that back uh, in order to get that piece of the bill passed. Um, And it had been vetoed by Governor Rauner. And so this was the veto session and it was able to get overrided and passed. Well, congratulations. Yeah, it's a big one. Amazing work by the all of the organizations involved. It was just, I just watched and, and supported in the ways that I could, but it was like amazing to watch the work of, you know, these hundreds and thousands of people who've been working on this for years. It was just astounding. It does sound like an incredible achievement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. As you know, Shannon, we tend to ask people on the show to talk about an issue that they have changed their own mind on. And I, um, when we were developing this idea, you sort of leapt on it and said, I've changed my mind on loads and loads of issues. Like, please, can I talk to you? And we were thrilled. So <laughs> I guess we'd love to hear about you. You mentioned that abortion was an issue that you changed your mind on in your lifetime. And we'd love to hear a bit about what you, you used to think. Yeah, I... Um... I have changed my mind on all sorts of things. Um, and I, I think abortion is the one that, that's sort of been the, the biggest uh, transformation in my thinking around it. And also just my, one of the things that helped me understand um, just how like indoctrinated I had been in sort of patriarchy and Catholicism and, um, and how much unlearning that, I needed to do as a result of that because my thoughts really weren't my own. And so this was the the sort of topic that helped me understand like how to flush out what my own thoughts and opinions actually are versus what I was being fed and what I have been fed over the sort of course of a lifetime. And how did you do that, Shannon? I think that's always a really interesting thing when you look at how people change their mind. How did you sort of get away from the noise and really tune in with what your opinion was, you know, now rather than what it had been in the past, perhaps? Yeah, I think that um, I've been reflecting on it. And I think that one of the more um, like interesting pieces in the journey was really being uh, having these moments of being challenged by people that I deeply love and respect and was like sort of surprised by. For example, at one point, I think I was 11 or 12 and um, I went to a Catholic school and at school they gave us these tiny little pins, gold pins, and they were feet. And I'm talking tiny. And it was supposed to represent the size of the foot of a fetus, you know, at the moment in its development where like it's still allowed to be aborted and I was like wearing this pin that I'd been given and was very adamant about like you know this fetus has feet and it's like just a person 
And, um, and I remember my mom just sort of seeing it and, and, you know, my mom put me in this school, uh, and we go to this church and she was just sort of like, what is that? And I explained it and she's like, oh, and, and so do you think that like, there should be no abortion ever for any reason? I was like, well, yeah, you know, it's murder. And she, she just sort of stopped and said, well, what, what about if somebody had been raped, you know, or, or about incest? And like, these are not topics that my mom and I talked about. <laughs> like, just to hear her say the word rape was like shocking. And I remember just stopping at my tracks and being like, well, I don't know. Like, I've never, nobody yeah. said that to me before. And, and I hadn't considered that that perspective before I was 12. And, and so that was a moment where I was sort of like, well, this is really interesting. Like my mom who put me in the school and, you know, sends me to this church and comes with me and, you know, usually at least by her actions seems to agree with all of this. And then, you know, suddenly she showed me that you could like consider some like a different version or, you know, consider a different perspective of something that we had been told was like in the Bible, this is murder. You know, there's just yeah. a hard line here. So um, she introduced and, and the so, kind of gray areas into what had been a quite black and white explanation yeah. by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I, I can think through so many of those like moments, especially around this topic where, where folks really would just, kindly and lovingly just sort of propose well what about this and it forced me to stop and think about yeah well what about that and that began the process of stopping myself to say yeah what about that or have I considered all of the perspectives or even more than one of the perspectives you know the one that I'm being sort of fed and how important is it's really interesting to me that you described it as being challenged kindly and lovingly. How important do you think that was to how you reflected and thought about the topic? And, and also how important was it that it was your mum who was, was asking you these questions? Yeah, I think in that moment, kind and loving was really important. I can think through other moments where just like straight up, like no Shannon and like aggressively being challenged has also been beneficial for me. Shannon, that's really interesting that you tell us about when being aggressively called out has also been helpful. Is there a time that you can recall when that happened? Yeah, um, I remember I was out at a restaurant with a friend of mine and the woman next to us like started breastfeeding at the table. And I was like, ah, like that's so uncomfortable. And he looked at me and was like, are you effing kidding me? And I was like, what? And he was like, come on, that child is hungry. Right. And he just like unloaded on me. And I was like, I am the worst. Oh my God. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't even think of it. And again, this was like, I hadn't even found my feminism and he was such a feminist and he really just like shut me down. And it led to a really interesting conversation. And I was like, why, like, why do I feel that way? And why did I even say that? And, you know, more examination, more understanding of patriarchy and, and all of that. But, you know, it was this guy feminist who like called me out for like 
you know, being uncomfortable with somebody breastfeeding in public. And I'm just like, you know, now I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's mortifying. Like how could I have ever been so indoctrinated? <laughs> but, you know, it was him and he was great. And he just shut me down hard. And that was one of those moments where I was like, yep, I just learned something. I know I did. Hold on. Let me go read something real quick. And that's really, because your activism is quite strident. I mean, I personally find it hilarious as well so um for for listeners like one of Shannon's most famous pieces was a piece of cross stitch that she did which she took on the women's march um which said I'm so angry I had to stab something 3,000 times which I <laughs> and and it went it went viral and I, like I, I follow you on Instagram and it, it makes me smile every day what you're doing but it is hard hitting and calls people out quite aggressively sometimes. And what do you find the reaction to? Do you find that is helpful at making people pause and reflect? I think sometimes, yeah. I, what I find interesting is that the medium allows me to say things much uh, more aggressively than I ever would in person. It's so unlike me to like, well, that's not true. It's, I find my, my ways when I need to call somebody out aggressively versus like, you know, educate somebody. And I think in person, I, I strike a balance that is based off of knowing a person and knowing a situation and, and feeling the moment, right? You know, the internet isn't built that way, right? So using a, the medium of embroidery to call somebody, like, like to call attention, it almost requires me to to use this medium in that way in order to get it like in order to get people to pay attention to it and then what my hope is is that it sort of stops them in their tracks and then they go forward and read what I've written because it's rare that I would post something and then not have commentary to go along with it and so it's almost just sort of the stop sign to get folks to be like wait what and then sort of like read what what I'm actually trying to communicate with them. Does that make sense? That's really interesting because I guess it's it's kind of beyond Twitter, isn't it, in terms of the need for brevity because it's going to take a really long time to stitch it if it's long. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. And, and, you know, it's a very, like, sweet medium traditionally, right? Like, it's very, like, we're used to bunnies and, and cats through this medium. And so when you're scrolling through and you see, like, boys will be held accountable for their fucking actions you're sort of like whoa what (laughs) which it just doesn't have the same stopping power in text or you know really any other medium than embroidery that's really interesting because you're very much confronting what people you you say kind of traditionally expect to see i suppose in that media aren't you which is you know welcome to your new home or congratulations you've had a baby (laughs) It makes it that much more striking. What it does remind me of is, and this is from a much darker side, is there's quite a bit of work out there that finds that people will sing things that they would never say. So people will sing things that are really quite, for example, anti-Semitic or racist that are built into lyrics and they just won't process it and think about it in the same way. Whereas you're saying almost it's a flip side that it makes them think more carefully because it's jarring. It's almost the opposite of lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing... um discreet about it and and that's why it has to be so overt because it is a like you know it everybody's used to it being real sweet and and um discreet and 
you know, I'm using it in a very non-sweet, discreet way. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of being of being sweet, um, I'd love to take you back to your sweet 12-year-old self that you were telling us about um, earlier. And you were talking about the conversation with your mom and with those tiny feet. Did you keep wearing those tiny feet afterwards? And what was next? And, you know, you talked about it being a journey where you reviewed your views on abortion. What what happened next? You know, I I wish I could say that I have a clear memory of of that whole process, but I really, I have milestones that I remember. I remember not wearing that pin anymore after that conversation. I just remember that I like put it in my jewelry box. I still have it. And I like put it in my jewelry box and I was just sort of like, uh, and, and you know, I didn't, I hadn't evolved my thoughts on anything other than I knew I felt uncomfortable suddenly. And so I didn't, I didn't feel as strongly about like, I will wear this and tell everybody about how abortion is wrong. It was just sort of like, huh, I'm going to put that away. Like it was almost an acknowledgement that like, I don't know enough. And prior to that moment with my mom, like I really felt like I knew everything. And so that led to a lot of rethinking all sorts of things related to the experience I was having growing up and um, growing up in the church and growing up in a patriarchy and, and being queer and not knowing like how that made me not fit in. And then in college, I just, I went to an all girls Catholic high school and I knew that if I was going to college, I wanted it to be the complete opposite. I wanted it to be massive and like diverse and public and, you know, just everything that my, like my education up until that point had not been, and I didn't know why. I just knew that that's what I wanted. And so I went to UMass Amherst undergrad and really found myself and, and really started to evolve who I wanted to be in the world through the, the experiences that I was having and ended up at a reproductive rights conference at Hampshire College. Still thought that I'd really figured out some of this like feminism and abortion, like and my thoughts on that and how the two played together. And there was a moment at this conference and I'm listening to this OBGYN abortion provider talk about how it is absolutely ridiculous that any doctor gets to opt out of abortion and that you can't opt out of treating somebody for a heart attack. So why on earth would you be able to opt out of treating somebody like right, providing them an abortion. And again, that was one of those moments where I was stopped in my tracks. And I was like, I thought I knew something. And now you have completely challenged how I think about what abortion even is. And like abortion as a medical treatment or, or, you know, just procedure. And so like those are, there are these moments where like, I can point to where somebody said something that just like, stopped me, made me rethink everything that I even thought I knew up until then, even though I had done all this re-educating of myself, and then made me want to think even harder about it and explore it even more. And and that was another one of those moments. Is there anything where you haven't had that experience? And bear with me for a minute while I think this one through, but is there anything where you haven't come up against those moments? So I think you sound like you are very self-aware and very conscious that, you know, when you hear something, very comfortable going away to reevaluate your own um, judgments. Do, do you feel like there are any topics left where you haven't had to do that? Or are there are any kind of things from when you were younger that still remain 
the same in terms of that sort of um, belief set that you grew up with? I don't, I don't think that there's anything that I haven't like anything major that I can think of that I like haven't considered. There are certainly things that I've gotten even more like stringent on that maybe I wasn't before, but the more that I like research and educate myself, the sort of like more extreme I become in my thinking about it versus like the more open-minded I've become. Have you got an example of one of those? Yeah, like um, gun control and owning of guns and First Amendment, right? Or, you know, the amendment rights around it. Like, I am a total abolitionist at this point. And I think I started out a lot more, well, you know, it's it's our amendment, right? We're you know, people should be able to have guns if they are responsible humans or like we should just have like measured gun control. And like, I'm at such a place now where I'm like, no, absolutely not. Abolition. I don't care. I don't eat animals. So I don't understand the need for hunting. Like we, that's not how we, the majority of people get their food anyways. Right. Like I have just like gone further and further and further down the line to like straight up abolition. The more people try to challenge me on that the the further I go really because I'm just like no I've I've considered all of this like I haven't been there hasn't been one argument presented to me that I haven't considered and rejected at this point and and I look forward to anybody being able to come up with one because I always want to consider more but at this point it's just like no everything everybody's presented has left me in a place of just saying like no we like we don't need this I, I I completely I feel so strongly about this at this point based on all of the research and educating of myself that I've done around this and for our British listeners it's probably worth explaining that Chicago has particularly acute challenges with gun crime particularly on the south side of Chicago doesn't it with gangs and with gang violence is that you know certainly I know that was the case a few years ago Shannon is that still unfortunately happening oh yeah we're a total disaster we're a total disaster I I mean I live on the far north side and I had a bullet come through my bedroom window while I was sleeping there's not one inch of this city that isn't affected deeply by the gun violence that exists here so you had a gun you had a bullet come through your window yeah well I was like do you know why it came through like what caused it? I mean, obviously a gunfire clearly caused it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Beyond that very simple I, like, I have a guess. What, what kind of incident? Yeah. <laughs> no idea. There was no, there's no evidence of anything going on or, or whatnot. Like they're just, I was asleep. I was awake. There was a bullet that came through my bedroom window. And then I, you know, instinctually ran to the window, which is brilliant to look outside to see what was happening. And there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing happening. It was fascinating. I mean, we, we literally have a person who's been walking around our neighborhood shooting people in the head and they can't find him, right? Like this is what's happening in Chicago right now. <laughs> when you live this, your perspective is, is deeply challenged. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine living. I think for for people who've grown up in communities that don't have guns, which is most of Europe, you know, that's al- almost impossible to to relate to. Yeah, yeah. 
do you, can you imagine and or how do you feel now when you talk to um for example nra members that don't agree with your your view yeah i don't i you know i don't even i don't talk to them that's the thing is at this point there's sort of like you know when you get to the point where you're just like yeah there's nothing left to talk about because we're not actually talking anymore like the minute that I talk about abolition, <laughs> like an abolitionist stance on guns, there's no more room for them to feel like they can talk to me, right? Like, because the conversation is just like, well, here I'm going to regurgitate all, you know, these same five arguments. And I can listen to those arguments and tell you why I don't, they're not valid to me. But it's like the, the the gun is so polarizing in this country that it is like, it's not even like a, a health and safety issue. It's not a like social justice issue. It is a political issue and it is the most polarizing of political issues. And it is almost impossible to have a, like a meaningful conversation around it as a result of how polarizing it has become and what's your view on you know what if anything can be done differently to bring people back i suppose from the from the extremes of the debate to be able to discuss it you know in order to be able to change each other's minds do you think there is anything that can be done or do you you just feel like it's a totally entrenched you know that, that there's no route out of it at the moment i think I mean, I recognize that we're not going to go from where we are to abolition, right? Like that's never going to happen. And so for me, like my perspective on it is let's find solutions. Let's get onto a path of reform. And in my world, it's like drive it all the way to abolition. (laughs) Now I recognize that other folks are like, no, no, that's the solution is to you know, come up with uh, ways to minimize this and, you know, regulate whatever else. And I'm like, so on board for that. And for me, that's just a step in the process. And I recognize that for others, that that's the end result. But I think that's part of the problem is like, folks on the other side of the issue, getting them to a place of saying like, no, no, let's, let's work on something to make a change here. It's like, there's this hard line in the sand that is politically motivated and I don't know how to move that, right? Because we've, we've now linked this life and death issue to politics. And for some reason, we, we, we can't find a way to unlink them. And I think if we could unlink them, if that, like, that could be the solution, right? Like unlinking this life and death issue from like the political ethos, then we can maybe have the conversation that can lead to some reform and some change. But even when we talk about reform, we're talking about like the government, you know, doing these things and us, you know, being okay with the government doing these things. And then it, it is inextricably linked back to politics as a result of that. Abortion as well, right? Like, this has been turned into a political issue and in some ways it has to be a political issue in order to like protect women's rights right now. 
but then you layer in religion to that, right? And and so when all of these very complicated and massive systems start to have opinions and start to play roles in any one of these topics, like it stymies a conversation and it, it shifts the lens with which people are framing their narratives and framing their arguments and framing their conversations in such a way that like, you know, for me with abortion, it was like, but God said so, right? Like that is what I believe at 12. And so you can't fight that. Like you can't argue God. And yet my mom fought God and won for me. And I wonder, Shannon, you talk about taking the politics out of it. Do you spend time with people who disagree with you on your view on abortion or or gun crime? And how and how do you build a relationship with them? Is it just by never really talking about some of those issues? Oh no, definitely not. I love talking about the hard stuff. But I have had much more success in talking about ab- abortion with people um, than I have about you know gun violence on the other side or folks who just think differently about it. And I think that. Partly it's because I am able to come at conversations around abortion with this real like humility and understanding of like where I once was and how hard that process was for me because it was so, um, I was so indoctrinated in this thinking around what abortion meant and what it was. And, um, you know, I come at it from a place of understanding of like, I get why a lot of people think the way they think and feel the way they feel about abortion. And so for me, it's like helping them recognize that, you know, like I was there, I get it. Here's, here's where I got and how I got there. And so it's a very different conversation than say guns. Do you know anyone at all, Shannon, who's changed their mind on gun control? Have you ever come across anyone who's done a kind of complete vault face on on that issue or not? No, I don't think I, I mean, complete turnaround. No, I've certainly like I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, over the past few years, especially have gone from from thinking like, you know, well, you know, it's people's rights to like, yeah these should be like highly regulated and you know so like they've they've moved along the path of like not caring or feeling apathetic about it or just thinking that like that is just part of america so like you know holy shit we've got some serious problems as a result of this and like we really need some some gun control Mm -hmm. and some movement there and so that you know there's a lot of folks in that boat um the problem is like like taking action on it, right? Like, so people have to care enough to then take drastic action in order to make these changes. And folks who are just going from apathetic to, um, you know, starting to care aren't necessarily ready to take drastic action on it. So that, I mean, that's what I feel like my work is. My work is constantly pushing people to take the next step, to take, an, like, to, to create an action item for themselves. And then, like, build that muscle memory of this is what an action item looks like and this is what your next action item could look like and here's how we grow your civic engagement and here's how we grow your action items on the things that you care about so if you do care about this and you do want this to change 
then you have to take action on it. And so, you know, no more talking. Like, here's the first step. Here's the next step. Here's the next step. And it's interesting that Laura asks about people moving in the other direction. I just, you talked on your, your work and I'd love to hear a bit more about how cross-stitch or how crafting may actually be a thing that can bring people together who might otherwise be polarized. I know that you've got some projects looking at that. Yeah, absolutely. What I have found is the minute that you bring people together in small groups to stitch together, right, to learn something, to create something with their hands, like I can't describe the transformation and the conversations that happen in those moments with people who, you know, don't know each other. And in most cases, like disagree about lots of stuff. Um, but something happens when you're together and something happens when you're learning something new together. And when you're using your hands and you're having a conversation that is um, like both active and passive because you're actively conversing with the folks around you. And, you know, you start out by talking about what you're making and why you're making it. And that leads to conversation, you know, cause specifically in my workshops, like we're craftivism, you know, they're craftivism based. So folks are, are coming to it to learn how to stitch, to stitch about something that they care passionately about. And so you could be sitting in a room with a police officer and somebody who is, you know, stitching about, you know, ending police brutality. And that leads to really interesting conversations around those two things. And, and folks are free to engage in the conversations and then go back to what they're doing and then go back to the conversation, right? So it creates this really interesting dynamic of um, like creating space for uh, quiet and thinking in the middle of really intense conversation and it's not like rude or you know um, disrespectful or it doesn't end the conversation right like it just sort of times it out for a minute and so um, my newest project that as history is really like a community organizing project that's like disguised as craft <laughs> and and so I'm getting folks together I'm teaching them how to stitch and we're you know, they're stitching me their stories. So they're, they're forced to think about themselves and their voice and what they're passionate about and what their, their story is. But you can't create one of these pieces in one session, right? So then folks are getting back together to stitch together. And my ambassadors then move the conversation away from the individual to the collective group that's there, to the larger community. For this group to say, we are a powerful group of folks who've come together and we're exploring our own voice and our own identity. And like, what sort of impact can we create in our community? What is our community need that we can bring to the table as a result of who is in this room and what we know about each other and about um, our own stories. And so then moving them from this sort of like stitching circle, who's, you know, stitching these pieces for this project to a group of engaged citizens who are then moving something forward in their community. In very polarizing times, it sounds like you might have hit on part of the jigsaw that could be a solution. I sure hope so. I really think that I have, there's like, there is something to this. And, and like, 
you know, I've probably done 50 workshops in the last six months on, you know, on my own. And then my ambassadors are hosting them around the world. And each time is uniquely magical, but weirdly the same, right? Like folks get together, they don't know each other. It's a little awkward at first. You know, we have a very like formalized, like introduction process. And then we start stitching. And the minute we start stitching, the like conversations start. And like my workshops are two hours generally. And by the end of it, I am like kicking people out. I'm like, no, you have to leave now. We're done. Like (laughs) you can get everybody's phone numbers and Instagrams and Twitters and like hang out with them over and over. But like it, it trans like in two hours, a total transformation happens and, and people are wildly connected by the end of this, even though they've been having like what could be uncomfortable conversations about like really hard topics. Um, And, you know, I'm just there to to watch and to jump in when necessary and, you know, start shit and, you know, end it when the two hours is up and, and then they carry on. And it's been, it's just been amazing to, to, to witness and, and to, to watch those groups get back together and, and to watch friendships form and really unlikely friendships. Shannon, that's a beautiful, uplifting ending. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Next week, we are going to be joined by a name that will be familiar to many listeners, a world-leading humanitarian and musician. We can't wait to share what he says with you. We'd like to thank our producer, Caroline Crampton, Open Democracy, who helps share the show with their many readers, and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is used under Creative Commons as our music.